0: Out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that Well, hello. Uh, welcome back to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. So, in this episode, I'll be you know, doing my best to to talk about the second half of the dreams in the witch house. So, if you listen to my first episode on the dreams of the witch house, um, the dreams in the witch house, um, I'll probably get the title wrong a few times throughout this episode. But anyways, I, I praise this story for a couple of reasons. One is I really, really started to... Love the interplay between science and magic, and this attempt to try to try to explain uh, time travel, interdimensional portals, witchcraft uh, from the dimension of, of science. We certainly get more of that in the second half of the story, um, even though it, it turns kind of gruesome and and violent and a little and to be frank a little bit weird. Um, I think there's a you know that kind of oddness to the story. And the plotting, it's, it's not entirely clear, you know, what actually took place uh, in the events of the story. Um, you know, there's a lot of question marks we're left with, but that's okay. I, I think I like that. Um, I think I'm fine with that. Um, the other thing I like about this is we get this kind of description of Arkham, um, especially Arkham's more perhaps seedy side. Arkham's immigrant community is explored in a lot of depth here, and I think that's a great aspect of it. Um, so, you know, for these reasons, I I I'm growing on this story, The Dreams of the Witch House, and I think, like most people, maybe this is not as like a top, seen as a top tier story. That's how I initially thought about it, but I think I'm changing my opinion on this. I, I think I'm finding this a much more fascinating tale. Um, so um, thematically, uh, the things I talked about in the last episode are going to carry on, obviously, um, but plot-wise, there's quite a lot that happens in the story um now this interplay between dreams and then some kind of response by our main character gilman continues uh that's we saw that in the first half of the story as well it happens i think two or three times in the second half of the story and then we get this like kind of long epilogue which um you know the story could have ended just with the death of gilman and it's gross enough it's shocking enough that it could have been the end of the story but i think lovecraft does well by by doing the coda this tale, I think it adds quite a lot in this particular case. At least, it adds a lot of the mystery. Actually, if it if it just ended at Gilman's death, I think the story would actually be more explicable than the coda. The coda, you know, doesn't actually it just adds more questions for for the reader. Um, so I left off with this uh, this discovery that things can physically communicate between his dream world gilman's dream world and he's of course living in this witch house this old uh the old house of kazaya mason or at least an old house i was associated with her she he's living there with other with well with immigrants he's a student he's living there with another student elwood who lives on the bottom floor he becomes a major player on the second half of the story and then there's like immigrants uh living in this town too so it's been split up into like condos um Temporally, the the second half of the story builds us up to Walpurgis Night, which is uh, the last day in April, right before May Day, and it's kind of associated with pagan holidays and things. And you know, as I'm recording this, this is actually coming up, or are just a little bit over a month from Walpurgis Night. This will actually probably be, this is up gonna be uploaded much later than that. But um, I don't record these episodes always in in the order that I upload them. But uh, that's. I certainly was thinking, while I was reading this, it's like how would one celebrate Wall Night in China if if one had the opportunity? So I don't think any bars are going to have any special drink you know drink specials. Maybe that's what we need. We need a bar that will have you know drink specials for all the weird holidays that that people don't normally typically celebrate uh, anymore. But if you're an Arkham, you celebrate these weird holidays like Wall Night. So, anyways. Uh, so he had this dream and, and and he saw the uh this kind of cyclopean city and he breaks off like a you know, a statue from um from I think it's like the stairwell or something or, or for something else. But it it appears to him in the real world. It's like in his bed and the... The landlord's wife is cleaning up his room and sees it there and puts it on his desk. So you know there's this communication between them and then how this actually works and the consequences of this are what's played out here. Now, by this point, Gilman has already realized that Keziah Mason is alive in his dreams, this witch, as is her familiar Brown Jenkins, and as is this third figure, this dark man, this black man uh, who seems to be an avatar of Neral Um and anyways, we pick up there's another dream he has. So, well, but first he tries to like, he knows he's walking in his sleep. So he tries to put the flower around his bed to try to, to track that and provide evidence of this um, sleepwalking. Um, so that's another kind of interplay. He's got the dreams and then he's got this kind of investigation of what happened and his response to it. And often that still takes the form of investigation into the science, into the, you know, into the or trying to find a scientific explanation of it. But he kind of turns a little bit more to folklore in the second half of the story. Gilman is a student of science and of particularly mathematics. And so, you know, that's one thing that interests him about Kazai Mason is like the weird angles in the house that she lived in. And his own interest in like multidimensional calculus and things like that seem to seem to play a role in all this. Um, but anyways, he has another dream where he's encountered by Kazai Mason. Uh. Brown Jenkins, the familiar, which is a rat, half rat, kind of half human. It's the size of a rat, but it's got like these human features and these human hands. It's really, really a creepy invention of Lovecraft's. I actually get the sense that that Lovecraft just couldn't bring himself to make a cat the familiar such an evil, evil figure as as Kazai Mason uh, or her, her new name, her her name given by Azototh, is Nahu, Nahu, something like that. Comes up a few times in the story. Um, but anyways, we get this description of this, this, this black man, maybe more clearly in the second half of the story. He shows up a little bit more, um, but he's also kind of associated with the devil here. We get this sense, quote, the evilly grinning dame still clutched him and beyond the table stood a figure he had never seen before, a tall, lean man of dead black coloration, but without the slightest sign of Negroid features, totally devoid of either hair or beard and wearing as his only garment, a shapeless robe of some heavy black fabric. His feet were undistinguishable because of the table and the bench. But he must have been shod since there was a clicking whenever he changed positions. The man did not speak. He bore no trace of the expression of his small regular features. He merely pointed to a book of prodigious size, which lay open on the table while the Bell thrust the huge gray quill into Gilman's right hand, In court. So that's our first really good description of this black man. Um, now, of course, because I Iamace is trying to get him to sign this book, this book of Azathoth. And if you sign it, you apparently get a new name, um, but you're kind of like losing your soul or or whatever. Again, there's kind of it's not clear how everything works in the story to me at least. Maybe of another re- cup readings. Maybe I'll notice some more connections. I don't know. Um, but uh, during this encounter, he resists this and he's bitten by the familiar. Um, quote um, over everything was a pall of intensely maddening fear and the climax was reached when the furry thing ran up his dream, the dreamer's clothing and his shoulders and then down his left arm finally biting him sharply on the wrist just below the cuff as the blood spurted from the wound Gilman lapsed into a faint quote now this is actually him waking up from the dream so he wakes up now it's, it's April 22nd so we're eight days away from Walpurgis night um, so it's kind of really wild he faints in a dream and that leads to his waking up the next morning. Um, now, meanwhile, as we're getting closer to Wall Night and these weird things are happening, you know, the immigrant neighbors of Gilman are like attuned to this. They, they kind of know what's sort of up. And you, we, we see scenes of them praying. There's this one guy, Joe. Um, what's his name again? Joe Morazowich. Uh, who's very religious and you know he's always praying and worshiping you know, crucifixes and things he's catholic um but he he knows sort of what's up and i think that's of course of a, a common lovecraftian trope is that the working class and the immigrants they are more closely associated with these really really odd um, traditions now gilman's response to this especially now that he's seen this is the second time something that happened in the dream manifested in real life first it was a statue of it was actually an elder thing statue and this time it's the wound he received from brown jenkins and this is of course going to be important in the climax of the story Um, he's trying to recall the dream a little bit and try to understand it and interpret it Um, and i'm trying to understand how he got these wounds how he got this rat rat bite and there's all sorts of like plain with doubt and the proof and the evidence that's there in front of him quote had he been sleepwalking within his room and had the rat bitten him as he sat in some chair or paused in some less rational position he even looked at every corner for brownish drops or stains but could not find any end quote um so this is actually when he he again tries to like i think sprinkle flour on the floor around his bed so he could see maybe evidence of the rats at first he wanted to do this to see where he would walk But here he talks about it for, you know, maybe to see the rats and that would explain. I mean, that's clear enough. A rat bites you while you're sleeping. You might interpret it in the dream as a rat bite. I'm sure we've had experiences where physical uh, things that happen to us physically, you know, affect us in our dreams. You work out, your muscles are sore. That may manifest in in a dream in some way. So anyways, um, but at this time he tries to seek out the help of his neighbor downstairs, another student named Frank Elwood. So Frank Elwood becomes a major character in the second half of the story. He didn't show up too much in the first half. Um, and we get introduced to a few more of these immigrants who live in the in the building, such as uh, this guy, uh, where is he? This French-Canadian, yeah, this this French-Canadian, Deschores, de um, who lives under Gilman's room, um, but Elwood's also on the floor below, but in a different room. Um, and they're fearful of this Walpurgis night. Uh, they're called, in general here, uh, simple people. Uh, this is kind of a Lovecraftian prejudice towards these working class immigrant mm-hmm. types. But as I always keep saying in this podcast, I think for Lovecraft, these people have a sort of power and knowledge that's not available to other people and that's part of their danger for us it's it's, they're not they're not incapable of of autonomy and agency it's it's fact they're you know it's they're very powerful so um yeah quote these simple people were quick to imagine that they had seen anything odd that they had heard about end quote Right, so they jump to the occult explanations of things. Now, of course, that's a wise thing to do if you're in a Lovecraft story. But anyways, a couple of things Gilman does after this this night where he gets bitten in the dream and this, this bite appears manifest in the real world. It's actually bleeding. Is He moves to Elwood's uh, room. So he's going to sleep on the couch in Elwood's room on the lower floor. And this will basically protect him a little bit because he wouldn't be sleeping alone that's part of his idea but he's also going to investigate a little bit and then there's this this push he talks to the landlord about poisoning rats like basically leaving out poison traps for the rats Um, and then his other goal here is to identify that statue go back to that statue before and really try to figure it out so you get this kind of the the foreigner vernacular bottom-up kind of popular t- traditions understandings about what's going on all tied to stories about um, the witch the witch house uh, the cycles of her appearance that's actually a cool thing about this it's like the you see this in a lot of horror tropes is this cycle of horror right it, something will come back repeatedly to cause some horror year by year on a certain date or or every so many years and, and these certain people are into that because they're affected by it and they're aware of these uh, cycles. But uh, so uh, his neighbor, Joe Morozowicz, is trying to make him a crucifix. And Gilman finally says, like, oh, okay, I'll wear the crucifix. It makes you feel better about it. But Gilman's a student. He's an academic like Elwood. And so they're still interested in like kind of more scientific, professional, you know, rational explanation of what's going around going on here and um, God, this text is so dense um, I'm afraid to, to skip some things anyways they take the statue to the professors at Miskatonic University and they find like it's strange alloys it's got um, some other elements that aren't really identifiable so it seems to be outside of what can be studied scientifically um, you know, it becomes a mystery and the professors can't answer it. They're curious about it. They're not ignoring it, but they really don't have really uh, clear answers. So it just, so we get this interplay between the folkloric explanations of things and the, the professional scientific explanations of it. This is kind of the high point of that, maybe. But we do get a wonderful description a few pages later where Gilman starts to put all this together and tries to come up with a general theory of what's going on rooted in the supernatural, the existence of witches, but also... You know, trying to, he tries to explain it via, uh, mytho- you know, science in a way. He tries to explain this mythology of witches through some kind of science in a way. And, and especially the new science, the modern science of relativity, quantum mechanics, perhaps, advanced mathematics and all that. It's the kind of things Lovecraft was really interested in, obviously. Um so what else happens here? On the morning of April 27th, a fresh rat hole appeared in the room where Gilman was a guest, but Dombrowski tinned it up during the day. The poison was not having much of an effect, for scratching the screens on the wall were virtually undiminished, end quote. doesn't say they killed any rats either, um, but I love this passage where he finally kind of starts to put this together. It almost functions as a bit of a... I guess i don't want to say a summary of everything that's happening but he's able to connect the folklore with the math i guess is what I, i'm trying to say here in the evening they drowsily discussed the mathematical studies which had so completely and perhaps harmfully engrossed gilman and speculated about the linkage with ancient magic and folklore which seems so darkly probable they spoke of old Keziah Mason, and Elwood agreed that Gilman had good scientific grounds for thinking she might have stumbled on strange and significant information. The hidden cults to which those witches belonged often guarded and handed down surprising secrets from elder forgotten eons. And it was, not, it was by no means impossible that Kazai had actually mastered these arts, uh, passing through dimensional gates. Tradition emphasized the uselessness of material bar- barriers and halting of witches' motions. And who can say what underlies the old tale's of the broomstick through the night so there's a little bit more about just the, the witchcraft mythology and how this could be explained if you take for if you accept that modern science opens up the doors to travel across time and space um, also we get the, a little bit about how the witches have the messenger the black man of the witch cult which is just defined explicitly as nidal in the necronomicon We also have the discussion of the witcher's familiars which of course we've seen plenty of in brown jenkins throughout the story so with all that done we kind of get another dream and and in this dream he sees the black-robed man he sees brown jenkins again he sees keziah mason uh, as as well now lovecraft's really clever here because Gilman's been preparing for this, so he's got the, like the, the flower on the on the ground. So he's been paired to track his motions of synabulism, um, and he is walking around a little bit. "Quote on the floor were confused muddy prints." So he was walking around, and his feet are all dirty um, from walking around at night. But though this is really clever, is like they, they, these muddy prints don't extend to the door. So it's not like he went out, got muddy feet, came back. It doesn't seem that way. Everything is from within the house. So you can't explain this. And again, this is again, the th- so this is the third time something from this other dimension or time or place is brought into to the witch house. right? So first it was the statue, then it was the bite, and now it was the, these muddy footprints. So with this, we can get to the climax of the tale. Um, now, we, it was mentioned earlier in the story that wall purchase night often was associated with the disappearance of children. And that happens... Again, here, so um, a two year old child of a laundry worker, immigrant as well, Anastasia Volchok, is just vanishes, right? So we have a, a child taken. Um, and reports about this kidnapped child involve people who see a triad walking around in the streets of Arkham, right? And these trials, of course, match the tr- trio of people that Gilman is seeing in his dreams. Right. A huge robe Negro, a little old woman in rags and a young white man in his nightclothes. This appears to be some kind of earthly re- avatars of the, the black man who's not a Negro, not African-American in Gilman's dreams. But apparently his avatar on Earth is. There might be some racial interpretation we give of this. I'm not sure there's too much about race explicitly in the story. In this sense, uh, there's a lot about immigration and culture and, and class, but but there's a bit I need to acknowledge that the little old woman in rags being because I Mason, and the young white man in his night clothes being the kidnapped child, perhaps. Um, uh, so the the old and then the quote goes on. The old woman had been dragging the youth, while around the feet of the Negro, a tame rat was rubbing and weaving in the brown mud. So there's Brown Jenkins. Um, so all this uh, leads to kind of a... This kind of does function as a bit of a summary of the story up to this point where Gilman and Elwood kind of talk about everything that's happened and, and try to come to some conclusion. Quote, uh, For a moment, both Gilman and Elwood exchanged whispered theories of the wildest kind. Had Gilman unconsciously succeeded better than he had known in the studies of space and its dimensions? Had he actually slipped outside our sphere to points unguessed and unimaginable? Where, if anywhere... Had he been on the nights of demonic alienage, the roaring twilight abysses, the green hillside, the blistering terrace, the pulse from the stars, the ultimate black vortex, the black man, the muddy alley and the stairs, the old witch and the fang furry whore, the bubble congrees and the little polyhedron, the strange sunburn, the wrist wound, the unexplained image of muddy feet, the throat marks, and the tales and fears of the superstitious foreigners. What did it all mean? To what extent could the laws of sanity apply to such a case? Um, so anyways, the story brings us then to um, Walpurg just died April 30th. So that's our climax of the story. And so the major players here are Gilman, the missing child, and, and the trio. And once again, he dreams, as we might expect. Um, now, they they try to stay up. They, they do try to stay up. It's kind of a nice, it's, it's almost like a, a, what's it, the Garden of Gethsemane? kind of story where they're trying to stay up and 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 keep some kind of vigil but they eventually fell asleep and Gilman nods off Um, and then he has his dream and this dream involves there's there's quite a lot going on it only covers about three pages but it's it's some pretty dense stuff Um, essentially what happens is he's brought to this sacrifice site a site of sacrifice where apparently he's supposed to sign this book and then it's it's not really clear if he does sign the book or not right he, he even questions whether he did or not but he's brought to this sacrifice site where because Mason is is about to stab this child um, quote the crone now motioned him to behold the bowl of a certain position while she raised a huge grotesque knife above the small white victim as high as her right hand could reach. The fang furry thing began tittering, a continuation of the unknown ritual, while the witch croaked loathsome responses. Gilman felt annoying, poignant and abhorrent shoot through his mental and emotional paralysis, and the light metal bowl shook in his grasp. A second later, the downward motion of the knife broke the spell completely, and he dropped the bull with a resounding bell-like clangor, while his hands darted out frankly to stop the monstrous deed. Then he's able to use a crucifix. This was the crucifix he was earlier given by... One of those immigrant people, uh, I think it's Joe, gives him, to, gives him this crucifix and he kind of humors him to wear it, but he's able to use that and he struggles with Keziah Mason and kind of uh, throws her off and she kind of falls into some sort of abyss below the sacrifice site, but seemingly for a moment at least saving the life of this child. But Brown Jenkins finishes the sacrifice. Quote, Brown Jenkins, tough of sinew and with four tiny hands of demonic dexterity, had been busy while the witch was throttling him and his efforts had been in vain. What he had prevented the knife from doing to the victim's chest, the yellow fangs of the furry blasphemy had done to a wrist. And the bull so lately on the foot stood full beside the small lifeless body. Right. So that is what happens. And this is followed by about a page of kind of really crazy wild stuff combining dream reality wall purchase nights and kind of a a ritual of that overall just kind of craziness um you know even a mention of shub as another of these these gods but at the end of all this craziness there's a return to reality and from this that point on the last five six pages of the story things seemingly make a little bit more sense I don't really want to explain too much of the trippiness of the trippy scenes. I'm not really good at that. But anyways, it's, it's fun to read. Um, now, the questions are like, did he sign the book? Uh, what's the significance of this ritual? What does this ritual actually achieve? That's not clear. Is it just the regular Walpurgis night sacrifice that, that Kazaya Mason does, allowing her to kind of live on in some interdimensional realm? Um, definitely something bad happened here, right? The child is killed, and we never see the body of the child again. And in fact, we know that there was numerous sacrifices. We learned that in the last few pages. So there's a lot of kind of uh, mysteries, and I kind of, by the end of the story, some of this is answered, but I think there, there really are more. Um, we're left with more answers. We're left with more questions than answers, actually. So anyways, the next morning, Gilman doesn't really wake up and he's unconscious, but alive Um, and he's got a rat bite on his ankle he's got like bruises around his neck from a from a struggle and the doctors check him out and try to treat him and they find out that that he's been turned deaf we're told he had a really really acute sense of hearing but this sense of hearing has been uh, completely destroyed completely um, um deaf by whatever happened um we also get this really fascinating like subplot here about what was going on in the real world and here's something i think never fully explained who these people are and what they were doing but we get reports of a police action against revelers on Walpurgis night you know in arkham quote evening paper spoke of a police raid on some curious revelers on a ravine beyond meadow hill just before dawn and mentioned that the white stone had been the object of age-long superstitious regard Nobody had been caught, but among the scattering fugitives had been glimpsed a huge negro. In another column was stated that no trace of the missing uh, kid had been found. Now, then we're, we're getting what's called the crowning horror. Um, you know, the missing kid, I guess, is horrible enough, but this is really gruesome. There's some ni- really nasty body horror here, which I don't think Lovecraft quite matched anywhere else in any of his stories, as far as I know. It's pretty wild. Um, basically... Um, anyways, you know, Gilman's in his bed, you know, right? he's under the covers, right? And then there starts to be like some motion and some blood starts pouring out, um, from, from Gilman and then a rat escapes. Um, I'll just, I'll just read a bit of this cause it's, it's really kind of wild, um, he had thought he had heard rats in the partitions all the evening, but paid little attention to them. Then, long after both he and Gilman had retired, the atrocity, atrocious shrieking began. Alwood jumped up, turned on the lights, and rushed over to his guest's couch. The occupant was emitting sounds of a veritable inhuman nature, as if racked by some torment beyond description. He was writhing under the bedclothes, and a great red strain was beginning to appear in the blankets. Elwood scarcely dared to touch him, but gradually the screaming and writhing subside. So that's Gilman dying. Um, go on with the quote. By that time, Dombrowski, Chanzowicz, Desrots, and Morw- Morwizowicz and the top floor lodger were all crowded in the doorway, and the landlord had sent his wife back to telephone for the doctor. Everybody shrieked when a large rat-like form suddenly jumped out from beneath the ensanguined bedclothes and scuttled across the floor to a fresh open hole close by. When the doctors arrived and began to pull down those frightful covers, Walter Gilman was dead. Um, and basically, when the doctor investigates his body, it found that he's been eaten from the inside out. All right, This rat had, had eaten him from the inside out. So gross, so so wild. Um, of course, it's just another example of how something happening in the dream manifesting in reality. But it's never really explained to my satisfaction how the rat got into Gilman's body, um, something involving the sacrifice, perhaps. Now, the people who saw this saw but didn't want to admit that the brat had, you know, like human hands. But it seems to have they had those too. So that the story could have ended there. The story could have ended with the death of Gilman, the, the missing child, the sacrifice, And the question whether he signed the book or not, but we get instead an epilogue, a coda, a four-page coda that explores the the fate of the house. Right now, Elwood, you know, his essentially his roommate died, so he should have got all A's for the semester. Uh, I I don't think he did though. He he dropped out for the year, came back the next semester and graduated. Right, so Elwood eventually graduate comes back and graduates, but. People stop living in the witch house and stop, and they stop renting it out. So it becomes kind of a shunned house, right? So it's like the shunned house in that story, the shunned house, which we looked at a long long time ago in this podcast. Um, but a storm hits Arkham on March 1931. A gale wrecked the house and great chimney of the vacant witch house so that a chaos of crumbling bricks, blackened, moss-grown shingles and rotting planks and timbers crushed down on the loft and broke through the floor beneath, end quote. So when they're cleaning up this rubble, this rubbish that hit, they find all sorts of creepy stuff. They find the bones of children. They find rat bones, generations of rat bones. That's the main thing. The main thing they find are generations of children's bones, ranging from basically dust, like from centuries old to more recent um, child children's bones. Right? Apparently the sacrifices of all purges nights going back, since, you know, the times of the sandwich Witch Trials. We also get mysterious uh, items such as fragments of books and papers, you know, that cross, again, across a large time, but all in the same print, which is kind of an important. Again, Keziah we, Mason, we're told, is able to travel across time to stay alive, so, you know, it's all in her print. Um, various kind of Grimondes and things like that. Quote, an even greater mystery is the absolute homogeneity of the crabbed archaic writing found in the wide range of papers whose conditions and watermarks suggest age differences of at least 150 to 200 years. Um, I think that they also find the Elder Thing statue um, and no one can really fully explain everything that's going on here. They consult anthropologists and scientists and folklorists and all that. But again, the main thing they find in this A layer of the witch house are is this room full of these children's bones, as well as a knife, which seems to have been the the sacrifice item. And finally, the last thing they locate is the skeleton of this rat thing, um, which is baffles the botanists. Right? It seems it's apparently the skeleton of a rat, but has you know the the biology department doesn't know what to do with it because it. It doesn't fit the the biology. Quote: uh, It looked more like a monkey than a rat. Quote: While the small skull with its savage yellow fangs is of the utmost anomalous, appearing from certain angles like miniature, monstrously degraded parody of a human skull. Um, So this is apparently the skeleton of Brown Jenkins. Now again, how Brown Jenkins is dead in a skeleton, and also alive. To accompany Kazai Mason in her her adventures throughout time and space is not really explained to my satisfaction, but that's okay. I, I I like this. That's how the story ends, by the way, is with this this discovery of this element of the Witch House. I actually do think the story could work without the coda, but it would be a weaker story. I think the coda adds uh, another layer of mystery and and horror to it. It does explain, I guess, the What's happened to the children if you didn't figure it out by this point but it adds new mysteries like uh what actually is brown jenkins um it seems he's alive enough to crawl out of gilman um maybe it's an avatar of some sort or maybe because i basically can make new familiars throughout time or whatever but that's it. That's the story. I really love this story. I, I, I think I, I think it's becoming one of my favorite Lovecraft stories because of the close look at Arkham, the depth of the consideration of folklore here, and just some of the more trippy aspects of it. Um, I do think... I do think it's not perfect, though. Um, it, it's, it's very dense. That's maybe one issue with it. It maybe could have breathed a little bit more. I think it may have been aided by a little bit more length because i think you know there's the here that i think the the dense text the dense dense way lovecraft writes works well for some really shorter tales but for the longer ones and especially after just finishing shadow over in mouth at the mountains of madness whisper and darkness where you get stories that are allowed to breathe a little bit more you can really see the contrast between them but there's so much to love in this 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 tale it's, it's really nice So anyways, that's all I'm going to say about it. Um, Moving ahead, we'll do one episode on the thing in the darkness um, shortly. So that's what's coming up. But in the meantime, let me know if you have any thoughts or questions about uh, the dreams in the witch house. Um, uh, Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Or just uh, leave me a comment on the Twitter. Send me a, a message there. I'll be interested to hear what you have to think of the what you have to say about this story. I've already talked to some people who said they really uh, don't like it, and it doesn't look like they're going to be convinced otherwise about their story. But my opinion about the story has changed um, quite a lot since I first read it. Um, and it really came from reading a lot more Lovecraft. That's that's how I came to kind of love this story more. Um, anyways, next up, the thing on the doorstep. Just one episode on that one. Uh, we're, we're down to three stories that Lovecraft published under his name um, during his lifetime. So, um, yeah, that's it for now. I will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Now we're strangers Gee, it breaks my heart to see you Day after day Turning away As much as to say You've never known me Stranger After sharing all your kisses